Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson. And I'm Ben Mitchell. How are you, Ben? I'm smashing, full of uh, uh, vim and vigour. As you can tell, I'm sure, from uh, the excited tone of my voice. And obviously everyone has got a lot to be excited about because we've got a fantastic podcast coming up, uh, loads more smashing guests and uh, lots of fun and bits and bobs like that. All that natural goodness you've come to expect from us after this past year of high-quality content. It's your monthly dose of vitamin a for animation. Uh, okay. We're still working on this uh, catchphrase, as you can tell. Maybe we should save it for before podcast recording or after podcast recording, not during. Yeah, or just just not do it at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's an, another uh, excellent option. I mean, the thing is, our genius is already spread thin enough between the magazine itself, <laughs> our interviewing skills, our podcast presentation skills. If we start, you know, threatening the stability of that finely balanced operation with catchphrases and the like, then uh, the whole thing could tip over. Where would we be then? We would be tipped over in a kind of capsized way. Yes. So who do we have joining us in this episode of the Squiggly Animation Podcast? Steve, why don't you tell me? And by extension, the listening audience. Oh, yes. Uh, we got an interview with Brian Cosgrove of Cosgrove Hall, the man who does not need any introduction, uh, but we'll give him one later on anyway. Also, uh, in the interview with uh, documentary filmmaker Kevin Shrek, who's uh, completed a film called The Persistence of Vision, which centres around Richard Williams and the production of The Thief and the Cobbler. We also have an update from Dan Greaves, who we featured on the last podcast, and an interview with Thad Komarowski, writer of Sick Little Monkeys, a fabulous book on the very troubled and very infamous production of Ren and Stimpy and a fabulous television production case study. All this and more, so sit down and pay attention. So, Stephen, how are you doing this month? I'm doing all right, yeah. yeah feeling yeah. feeling a lot better than I did last month. What was wrong last month? Well, I just had a cold. Oh. You know, I, I managed to survive. You and, made it uh, through, all right. I made it. I made it through. I That's survived. That's good. The audiences can rest easy because between yeah. your cold and my cold in succession of one another, they may be extremely concerned about the future of this podcast with our yeah. immune systems so deficient. <laughs> What awful non-assertive weaklings we must come across as being felled by the common cold in such a way. But here's what you hold on to. We produce the podcast anyway. We soldiered on. We don't like to disappoint our audience. Through the wind and the rain and the snot and the bile. Here we are today. So uh, animation, that's still a thing, right? Yeah, yeah, and Good. some animation things have happened this month, uh, which which would be, I think this is the place to talk about it, so we might as well. Have you seen the news, Ben, starting off about Disney laying off uh, all their 2D staff again? Why, why'd they do that? Uh, Seems kind of counterproductive to the whole making of cartoons to fire all your animators. <laughs> Well, it's it's the it's the uh, feature division that they've been that've been laid off. I'm sure there's still animators working uh, for telly, and obviously there's still hire freelancers for advertisements and, and promotions and things like that. But yeah, it's the fe- it's the feature animation, which is basically the the main thing. I would I would say 
Um, so yeah, Walt Disney Animation Studios have, have let go quite a few. They've kept on a few uh, people. I think Eric Goldberg has been kept on and, and people are still negotiating their contracts, which I don't know much about. I'm not a lawyer or anything. Mm. Uh, I'm not privy to that information. But uh, yeah, it's, it's another, another little dip in the, uh, the history of uh, 2D feature animation at Disney. I mean, we remember uh, 2001, the last time that this happened, and, and we, we discussed the documentary Dream on Silly Dreamer. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, but yeah, it seems history is repeating itself, you know, laying off the animators again, just when everyone thought that, um, you know, John Lasseter had come along and, and saved 2D animation at Disney. Uh, these guys get laid off, which is a shame. So I, I thought it was all supposed to be better now, Steve. I'm sorry to... They told us 2013 would be the year. It all <laughs> gets better. Yeah, well... They lied, Steve. They lied. They lied, they lied to your face, Ben. Just a constant avalanche of, of, of bad news. It's enough to make us want to take our own lives in the most graphic and disgusting way possible. Well, I just, I'm just, if we know. can get through a cold, Ben, we can get through this. So basically what you're telling me is that there are some freelance positions opening up and I can scab my way into Disney. Like, now's the time I can strike while the iron is hot proverbially speaking. Well, this news is quite old, so while the iron is lukewarm, maybe maybe polish your oh, CV up. Well, that's no good. I can't betray my fellow animation brethren and for my own evil ends when the iron is tepid. It's just... <laughs> it's also a good point to remember that they're not the only guys doing, you know, 2D animation. You look to the continent or look to Japan for some, some fantastic 2D animation coming out of those places. Still the likes of uh, Sylvain Chomet and... Uh, and other people, I'm sure there'll be some some great films at Annecy this year uh, in 2D. 2D is still out there. You know, you don't have to just rely on Disney to supply you with it. But they have such great merchandise. They do. They have shops full of them. And, uh, you know, tie-in video games and sing-along. Sing-along. Price-to-own video cassettes. Sing-along video cassettes. I had not thought of a sing-along video cassette until you just said it again <laughs> That was a great way of rehashing old footage, wasn't it? I don't think I ever actually had one. I just saw them in the store and and cottoned on to it being a scam. Oh, we we were we were more stupid than that. We bought them. We, <laughs> we we didn't quite sing along. We just sort of watched the ball bouncing up and down as kind of on the screen. Very therapeutic. The guy who worked on the Disney sing-along VHS cassettes animating the ball bouncing up and down. Do you think he went home at the end of the day and goes, "I animate for Disney." <laughs> He's probably still uh, he's probably still riding on that meal ticket, I would imagine. I knew a girl who used to tell people she worked for Disney, and what she meant was she just worked in one of those stores. <laughs> she was a retail girl. Just a little bit. I mean, technically, she wasn't lying. Yeah. Well, the the amount of, the, the rate that Disney are buying up companies, anyone will be able to say that they work for Disney soon. You know, I probably work for Disney at this yeah, point. At some point, I'll probably we'll probably find out that you know. Something associated with with Squiggly is is has been purchased by Disney, and now that we we <laughs> we're all puppets of the Great Mouse. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that that's uh, that's sad news for those involved. But you know, go and buy some other two D animation DVDs. Get over it. <laughs> what are some of your like two D animation current highlights of what's going on in the world of two D? What's my current... From your perspective. My current highlights of 2D animation. Well, big figures, I would say, 
Sylvain Chamay, I'm, I'm a big fan of his. I mean, the other day I was I was planning on doing some sketching and I thought, oh, I'll put a film on in the background and I'll I'll put the triplets of Belleville on. And I thought, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have it on in the background while I'm sketching. And I put it on and I just couldn't move my eyes away from the screen. Yeah. The whole film is just incredible. Then there's not just Sylvain Chamay, there's, there's, there's plenty of us. I mean, what about yourself? There's TV animation as well. And, and short film animators, there's you know, two D is not dead. That's the important message here, isn't it? That mm. you know, there's, there's there's still plenty of it about. Well, as long as they keep making the Cleveland show, I'm a happy camper. Ah, because if that was cancelled, I would die, Stephen. Ah. my soul first, just to mock my body. Um, I've got some terrible news for you, then, mate. I'm very sorry to to tell you. Hopefully, unrelated to what I just said. Well, you sat down. Yes. Have you got a paper bag nearby? Have you got, uh, just to breathe, just in case, just to breathe into I, I can improvise. Cool, okay. There's no way of saying it nicely, so I'll just, I'll just say it. The Cleveland show has been cancelled too. Okay. Yeah, suck it up then. Suck it up, you're a man. This has to be a mean, cruel trick, because as far as I'm aware, it's actually literally against the law to cancel a Seth MacFarlane show. I mean, post-Family Guy originally being cancelled, didn't that basically, like, determine that he was an indestructible force of animation? It was the DVD sales, wasn't it, that did that? A young, naive Ben Mitchell would proudly say to his friends, you know that Family Guy show they brought back? It's because I bought the DVDs. Because, man, that is some fresh comedy. (laughs) These jokes will never get old. In the year 2001, actually, it kind of was <laughs> sort of funny. <laughs> and then, you know, you, you, you realize it's, they make the same episode of the same show again and again and again. They just they, they found a formula, ooh, and they stuck to it. And then ooh. they took that formula and cloned it twice. <laughs> yeah. So you've got American Dad, which is still on the air. And, yeah, unfortunately uh, for you, Ben, the, the Cleveland show has been cancelled. But how is it that... If there are three identical shows, that one of them is being cancelled and the other two aren't. Like, what is that? Is it just viewing figures and, and is it because of a time slot or is it that they just don't like German bears? I have no idea. The the, the comedy talking fish and the, the drunken dog, that's fair game. But if you f*** with the German bear community, you're crossing a line. I'm, I'm turning off. <laughs> the German bear community. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, if, if we could see into the mind of, of television executives and commissioners, then uh, we'd be very rich people, Ben. I think we can put ourselves into the minds of those people. We just have to imagine just vast expanses of nothingness <laughs> with the occasional dollar sign fluttering through the air. <laughs> uh, it's a little weird that they'd have three identical shows on the same network for so long. I mean, you know, at, at least The Simpsons and Bob's Burgers are their own universes in terms of, of tone and delivery and, and story structure. Mm-hmm. But I think that's, those are the only other two as far as like animated content on Fox, weren't they? Is there other stuff they're doing? I believe so. I mean, I don't, I, I don't have an American TV, but yeah, it seems to be very McFarlane uh, and Simpsons orientated at Fox. Uh, obviously, uh, Futurama moved over to Comedy Central uh, and then over mm-hmm. to Ad- Adult Swim, I believe. Uh, you know, that's, that's hopped around a fair bit. It's weird, isn't it? There's that very popular meme on the internet about uh, about McFarlane's work. And it says, you know, it's about a lovable... His shows are about a lovable, stupid dad 
and then a pelvis day picture of Peter Griffin, Stan Smith, and Cleveland Brown. Right. And then you know he's married to a hot wife. His daughter hates him. His son's an idiot. Yeah. You know, and and there's a, there's a miniature psychopath. It's you know very formulaic. You know, if you if you study it like that, it, it's completely interchangeable. It's like how I when I was a child. And again, I, it, it's more forgivable when it's Seth MacFarlane, but when you see like other shows trying Im- to imitate it, like stuff like Full English or uh, Crash Canyon and various others, where you can tell, okay, that's that version of that character, that's that version of this character, you know? It's such non-creativity. And the, the people who aren't creative are so wearying in the sense of how much they sort of rationalize their creativity and, you know, tell themselves they're coming up with an independent idea when really they're just taking something that already exists and changing it the absolute bare minimum amount. It's, I remember when I was very young, I, I really wanted to write a book or a short story or something and thinking, oh, well, how hard can it, I'm talking like five years old, right? So I'm thinking to myself, how hard can it be? And my favorite book at the time was James and the Giant Peach. And I, I have this very clear memory of me going, Okay, how about Brian and the really tiny apple? <laughs> like that was that was literally the creative process and even at 5 years old going, yeah, that's really not even trying. <laughs> but honestly, is that so far removed from the way these people are making shows now? You know. No, no you're right. A bunch of people and they they investigate storage lockers apparently Idiots watch that nonsense. So let's do the exact same show and call it something vaguely different. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Everything's auctioned on the television now as well, isn't it? Everything's all kinds. And cakes as well. <laughs> Everyone's obsessed with, you know, Chocky Wocky Doodah, Ace of Cakes, Great British Bake Off. And, you know, people are sat around watching people cook dinner. You know, It's like there's no risks taken in television anymore. Here's the difference. And I'm not trying to be like sanctimonious or whatever, but I, uh, one of my films, the one that is distributed the least and seen the least, I was very concerned at one point when a, lo- a number of people in a row who had seen it at one of its sort of rare public screenings pointed out the similarities it had to a uh, commercial that wasn't on TV. It was like one of these viral things. So it sort of did the rounds sort of pre YouTube, you know, and, um, there is a sequence of events in this viral ad that is like shot for shot identical to one of the sequences in this film I did. And um, the difference is when I hear that, I'm like, oh no, I got to change this. I got to rework this or whatever to make it original again, rather than just sort of write it off to parallel thinking or whatever. Because like for a while, initially you kind of think, did I just rip that off and I forgot about it? You know, because we file away so much stuff subconsciously, you know, that that's, that's bound to happen every once in a while. That's why nowadays, before I release stuff, I show it to a lot of people. It's, it's less the feeling of, of ripping someone off or the idea of, of being perceived to be ripping someone off, you know, now I don't know if that attitude is going to help me, in the long run, because it seems like these huge successful advertising companies, their bread and butter comes from looking at stuff that students do, successful, inventive, independent short films, and say, okay, let's do a commercial, not hire that director, just do that inventive thing he did. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because technically he, while he owns copyright, I guess, on the particular script 
or the story structure or the music or whatever. He doesn't own copyright on the idea. That's the way they kind of look at it mm -hmm. or the execution, you know, and that's... Uh, yeah, you can't copyright a style as well. That's that's the that's quite a sad thing as well. You yeah. Know? Um, you see Blue, B-L-U, you know, the guy who animates graffiti. Uh -huh. um, his style has been copied so many times and so many, like, adverts on the television. Uh, but mm -hmm. if you don't know who Blue is, I would recommend going and seeking out his stuff. But his method has been copied so many times. And, you know, he he's the guy who you can trace it back to him, you know, yeah. recently. There's a, there's a few times when I've seen big studios have created short films and I'll have a similar idea in my sketchbook and I'll mm. be absolutely gutted when I see it. Yeah. Um, obviously my idea isn't as good as theirs and I'm too lazy you to get the film made. You see a version of your idea with resources and uh, proper funding behind it and the proper crew behind it and... And proper execution. It... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that anything I would create would be anywhere near as, as good. I mean, I, I had an idea for, uh, it was going to be like a, a couple driving along in a car, or at least you think they're driving along in the car, and you hear them arguing about getting directions. You know, well, let's pull over and get directions. No, let's not pull over and get directions. And it's all black, and you can hear like a road in the background. And then the big reveal was that there were green space aliens, and they ended up abducting a farmer. And, and, and asking him for directions. And I had this in the idea in my sketchbook and um, I was gutted when Lifted by Pixar came out, which was about a driving instructor instead of a couple arguing. And I had a few different ideas around how my approach was, you know, different to theirs. But if I would have actually got off my ass and made that film, <laughs> the similarity would have been too, you know, too close to sort of, you know, I would have been accused of plagiarism and things like that. But this is this is the thing. I wouldn't have been the first person to do something with green space aliens. I wouldn't have been the first person to do something about an alien abduction. I wouldn't have been the first person to do something about about something that's lost in translation, which was going to be a, a part of the joke. Nothing really is that original. Um, mm. You know, everything sort of carries forward. I think Seth MacFarlane knowledgeably <laughs> he plagiarizes his own work yeah. you know self-plagiarization it's uh, yes that's the exact same style of humor as well mm -hmm. he did that like YouTube series for a while the the cartoon cavalcade shorts. of comedy or something yeah yeah and that could have been a great opportunity to do stuff in different styles experiment with more avant-garde approaches to humor or whatever but that's probably not what they commissioned them to do they probably just said okay make a bunch of little shorts but for christ's sake make it look like the seth MacFarlane style yeah did you ever see uh, uh larry and steve yes yeah his, his, his uh, student film and then his um his cartoon network pilot yeah now that i think i saw the cartoon network version it was a proper crew made thing it wasn't really a family guy pilot it was a sort of genesis before Family Guy, like, developing the Pete and Brian character, right? It was the guy and his dog. And the voices were the same, but the designs were completely different. Am I thinking of it right? Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. But that animation style, from my memory, was so not like Family Guy, right? Mm -hmm. Wasn't it way more, like, 90s and cartoony and... Oh, yeah, better you know? walk-color backgrounds, that kind of, that kind yeah. of thing. So yeah, shading on the characters. He has that in his history, you know? It's not like how Matt Groening... You know how The Simpsons very clearly came from the only way Matt Groening can draw, which is that life and hell style of mm -hmm. uh, big bulgy eyes and overbites and things like that. Like Seth MacFarlane has some artistic range in his background, at least. 
But uh, yeah, something about that Family Guy style and that that clean line look to everything seems to have really resonated with the network, I presume, more than the actual public. I'm sure the general public would probably prefer to see something that's a little less exactly the same. But yeah. maybe they would all lose interest, though. That's, you know. I think Larry and Steve's on YouTube, so if people want to check it out, I think it's there. I think even there's a character there that sounds and looks like Quagmire. I haven't seen it for quite a while, but there's quite a lot of Family Guy parallels in it. Mm, mm. Yeah. So yeah, sad news there about the Cleveland show um, being cancelled. Not really. Who gives a <laughs> sh- for Christ's sake? You're not going to kill yourself then. <laughs> you're yeah, going to stay with us, Ben. <laughs> I worked through it. What can I tell you? Frankly, as long as Futurama doesn't get cancelled, I'm fine. Ah. Um, Steve, you look concerned again. Yeah, I've got some some more bad news for you, Ben. Futurama's been cancelled as well. Why, Jesus? I've been so good to you. Sorry, <laughs> little chat with Jesus there. Yeah, unfortunately... Uh, that actually is a surprise. I mean, that seemed like they hit kind of a stride. Yeah, and I mean... Futurama, you know, it's such an incredibly well put together show. It was really sort of flying high. The last series has been incredible, really enjoyable series. Back to uh, what it does best after the the films, the feature films that they made. This new series has been fantastic, you know, back to what it was all about. Keeping things sort of to the point, 20 minutes of story, you know, I think that just sort of worked well for it and maybe taking some time off helped it i would say that it's it's there's not much in it but i think it's my favorite animated sitcom and i would go so far as to say that it is the first and maybe only science fiction animated sitcom even above the jetsons mm-hmm. yeah was the jetsons really sci-fi it was more kind of sitcomy, wasn't it yeah but obviously it was set in the future and it was robots and things like that so that's, that's but that was that just kind of the be. inverse of the flintstones being set in prehistoric times yeah yeah but i don't think they actually did i I didn't really watch the jetsons did they did they base story ideas on science fiction concepts or because it seems like futurama really puts a lot of thought into the science as well as the fiction and they don't just make crap up you know it's not just like okay we can just get a robot to do it or a computer to do it they've they've put together some quite interesting concepts for episodes based on actual scientific theorem and i mean i don't really like sci-fi but i like good television you know well that's my point for the first time it took all the 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 elements of of sci-fi television and good television and and really you know ran with it with 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 2d adult animation you know it's it's a shame to see it is a real genuine shame to see it go if it does go you know and it'd be it would be a shame if we never see it's like again so when Disney aren't firing all their 2D staff, they're buying uh, uh, the whole George Lucas empire and then firing everyone <laughs> involved in that. Yeah. Well, that may be misrepresentation. I'm not sure of the specifics. I know that LucasArts has gone, the uh, the gaming division, right? Yeah, which is a, another big, big shame. I cert- well, certainly to, to an old piece of shit like me that uh, has particularly fond memories of... of those old like adventure games they did which wouldn't have been probably my cup of tea except of the the animation was so wonderful that was really pioneering bringing 2d animation to video game graphics 
the thought and consideration behind the way these sprites moved and interacted with the environments really like it conformed to all the sort of rules of, of actual animation and cartoon layout um there are obviously limitations but you really felt like you were you were in an interactive cartoon and when you are like an eight-year-old or nine-year-old that's mind-blowing you know it's right, you know, getting involved in this world. For me, I would say, when you can get involved in a cartoon, it gives you a similar kind of feeling as when you see Roger Rabbit and think, wow, cartoons can exist in the real world. You know, you can exist in a cartoon and make the decisions and explore the universe in greater depth. And that's something that, that LucasArts really presented to their mm. uh, fans. Again, like I say, he was never really a Star Wars fan. And I think a lot of their gaming output was like Star Wars properties. So I, I wasn't really familiar mm-hmm. with that stuff, but some of the standalone things they did were really, really great. I mean, the, the whole Monkey Island thing, I mean, that was huge. Yeah. Sam and Max was great. I mean, that was building on something that existed already. But my absolute favorite was um, Day of the Tentacle. Yeah, yeah. I've seen people uh, dressed up as the the kind of comb thing as well recently on... on, on uh, that would be the tentacle. The tentacle. For God's <laughs> sake, Steve, wake up. <laughs> That's okay. If without context, it, it is quite coney. You posted on our Twitter when when Lucas Arts announced that they were laying off all the the, the games division. Uh, that opening animation to it, and oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, such a such a kind of wonderfully imaginative take on 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 games and gameplay. I was big on Sam and Max. I was huge mm. on Sam and Max. I thought that they were incredible and it really used to frustrate me when i couldn't advance through the levels it yeah. really used to frustrate me so much you have to like solve these really like bizarre lateral thinking behind them puzzle things where sometimes yeah. sometimes you'd have to think really logically and then sometimes you'd have to do something completely random and i guess what it would boil down to is you just had to get every single thing to interact with every single other thing you'd get these wonderful like conversations out of it between the various video game characters or these wonderful little isolated animated sequences here and there but then that might not actually progress the game anymore like mm-hmm. you wouldn't be any closer to actually solving the puzzle behind it i remember actually learning stuff from day of the tentacle in a way that annoys you you know like there's a at one point in day of the tentacle uh you need vinegar because you're stranded in the past and um, you need to create a battery. There's no vinegar to be found. So, but if you can find a bottle of wine, it's three people. One of them's in the present, one of them's in the past, and one of them's in the future. So, if I remember right, the guy in the present has to win a bottle of wine, then send it back in time to the guy in the past, who then gets Thomas Edison to put it in a time capsule that the woman in the future can find 400 years later and the wine has now turned to vinegar. <laughs> so she sends the vinegar back to the past. What the f***? <laughs> like, how the hell do you work that out? Especially if you're like nine years old. God only knows how I however got past that. But I remember being... Why did they go to the shop? I mean, surely they had vinegar back then. There's no need to sort of tear massive gaping holes in the space-time continuum just to get vinegar, which you can buy for like three pence in a shop. It was just to antagonise us and make us question everything. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you can... I don't think you can still buy those games. You can probably... 
It's probably emulated. I don't want, I don't want to say find them online because that's probably there's probably not like a legitimate way you can do that. But there's clips of them on YouTube and stuff like that, and maybe you can get them on eBay. If if computers nowadays still run them, I don't think they would. But you know, there's a way I think to sort of track this stuff down for if you like video games and old timey retro stuff. It's a nice bit of animation. I think they're nice little animation. Not milestones necessarily, but as far as marrying animation with video games, they were a big leap forward and they were really, like I say, very immersive and, and just very charming and funny as well. Like the, the dialogue was great in some of them. Sam and Max and Day of the Tentacle in particular, I, I was, you know, you really wanted these characters to succeed and you felt you were in their shoes and that kind of thing. Yeah. And you didn't see that degree of high quality animation in video games, like platformers and stuff like that until probably something like Earthworm Jim, which would have been maybe a year later or a couple of years later. Um, I mean, that was fantastic when it happened, but it, it just, there was a long time when the, the notion of putting that degree of effort into animating characters and video games was either not technically possible or they just felt it was redundant because that's not what people are buying the games for. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, once, I mean, once they got that going, you know, it was like, wow, you can really see this amazing future of like these these playable interactive cartoons which then of course didn't happen because games went to 3D and CG and became like polygons and then so that when they bring Sam and Max back a few years ago it's all like a CG Sam and Max and it didn't seem to you know I maybe they were good but I didn't you, feel any playing, pressing desire to like track a, them down the same computer game that you could play with any characters and things yeah. You know, even like the Simpsons hit and run things, that's not really the 2D animated universe, is it? It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's a different, completely different thing. Completely different, but, you know, exactly the same to everything else. You know, what we're losing or what we, we lost when, 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 when computer games went from, uh, from 2D to, to 3D, or CG rather, in a way, was this, this little exclusive little world, which uh, mm. is now forever in the past or like you say on ebay or <laughs> car boot sales oh uh, there's a documentary somewhere on on making earthworm gym and they actually did it in an animation studio they set up light boxes and did it all by hand and then scanned in the animation to create the graphics and that's wow. quite interesting to see and i'm watching this thinking wow they should find all the actual animation footage and just remake the game for hd platforms and then like a year later they did that and I haven't played it, but I, I'm not sure if that idea was better in my head than in actuality, <laughs> you know? Um, I don't even know if I have something that would run it, but, uh, yeah. So, again, parallel thinking. Our brains yeah. are all synced up with each other. I know they do, like, video game tie-ins with stuff like Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep, but are those all just... Do they just do them in CG, do you think? Yeah, yeah, the Wallace and Gromit stuff, they, they generally do them in CGI, and then they, they get somebody who's not Peter Salis... <laughs> to do the voices oh really yeah oh, what's he doing with his time that's so precious <laughs> he's not doing Wallace and Gromit that's weird. who would who would who would bother if it's not even the guy but there we go yeah and it's uh, yeah maybe spread the Wallace and Gromit thing a little bit thin in these particular video games but you know animation appeals to kids who just want more and more so why not make it and why not give it to, to the kids Cosgrove Hall. It sounds like a lovely place. It certainly was. <laughs> Being fans of animation, it's quite easy to heap praise on on animators and 
and shows and things like that that we appreciate from our childhood and that's no exception here when, when looking at Cosgrove Hall. But what Cosgrove Hall did, apart from wonderful programming and what cements its place as what I would call a legendary animation studio, is the way that it created an industry around itself and the way that that legacy still continues to this day, as well as brilliant shows such as Danger Mouse, Duckula, Avenger Penguins, BFG, Wind of the Willows, Chalton and the Wheelies, so many fantastic films to mention. You've also got guys that used to work there, Barry Purvis, who we've interviewed in the past, Peter Saunders, who we've interviewed in the past, who then went on to you know, create McKinnon and Saunders with Ian McKinnon, who are now taking on Hollywood. You know, hmm. Barry Purvis himself went to work for Peter Jackson on King Kong. And a whole heap of producers, writers, directors, artists, all came from, from Manchester, from Cosgrove Hall, where there was nothing before hmm. Cosgrove Hall came along. And for this reason, I've got an incredible amount of respect and admiration, really, for the interviewee, Brian Cosgrove, who I interviewed last about a month ago. As a kid, Ben, I mean, did you have any favourite shows from Cosgrove Hall? Mm. <laughs> Give me something. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm looking at the, uh, the Wikipedia list. I'm sure odds are there have got to be one or two of these. Uh, I like Danger Mouse. I thought it was funny. And did you say Duckula? I love Duckula. Yeah, I like Duckula. That was cool. Yeah, I prefer Duckula to Danger Mouse. But didn't one come from the other? I vaguely yeah. remember there was a sort of crossover thing with one of them. Yeah, Duckula was uh, was uh, made a cameo originally in Danger Mouse. Who you know they liked the character that much, they wanted to make a show of him. Uh huh. A whole uh-huh. a whole show of the of the character, which uh, you know, thankfully, just like Frasier. Yeah, Duckula, my favourite as a kid. I was, uh, I always loved uh, Nanny, who used to just smash through walls, and mm. uh, an Igor who had a, a real streak of evil to him. The kind of uh, stories and script writing and, and language used in them films, you know, couldn't get used today in kids stuff. And, and um, it's a shame because it could be used. I mean, kids are dumbed down to an awful lot mm. nowadays in television. Whereas you watch an episode of Duckula or Danger Mouse, it can still be watched by an adult today because it comes from that comedy, that school of comedy where the goodies and Monty Python and, uh, you know, carry on films and all that sort of stuff uh, came from. People just had a better attitude about what they would expose their kids to because they they were intelligent enough to, to assess what kind of dialogue a kid's going to be receptive to and what not. And just sort of get, okay, well, this is a style of writing that I can enjoy just because it makes these sort of, not even illusions, but, you know, isn't condescending to kids, is actually being, you know, kind of uh, accessible to adults as well. Uh, There's nothing necessarily threatening about that, or I should feel ill at ease with, you know? Yeah. And so it's a very rare thing now. I mean, I don't watch many kid shows now, to be honest, but like... I think the last thing I remember that kind of did that would probably be like Powerpuff Girls. Not a lot, but you know, enough to kind of keep it interesting. But then it's sort of, it's, it's less sort of clear whether that's them just trying to sort of slide in little grown up jokes. You know what I mean? Like Ren and mm-hmm. Snippy, it was definitely a case of let's see how much we can get away with. And yeah. I expect with something like Danger Mouse or Duckular, if I were to watch it again, it would be more like they're just writing in a way that comes naturally to them. You know, that's right, and yeah. uh, uh, not trying to sort of push the boat necessarily, but not being particularly restrained either. 
not yeah. sort of worrying if i mean what i loved about um or appreciate looking at old oliver postgate stuff for example is just how much he didn't dumb down language not bad language obviously but but you know big words descriptive terminology things that wouldn't necessarily be in the day-to-day language of the average toddler or young child but they would learn not in the, yeah. that wasn't its point but they you know you, you you by osmosis you get like a wider vocabulary if you're exposed to stuff that doesn't talk down to you so that's something that i respect of uh if that's you know what they would do with their shows the good people at cosgrove hall i'm just looking at the entry so it actually wasn't a hall that he named after himself <laughs> he was partnered with a guy called hall yes mr mark hall okay. unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago the original cosgrove hall unfortunately closed down a few years ago and if you listen to our second podcast you'll hear uh, barry purvis lamenting the original studio being pulled down and uh, being turned into a nursing home but out of the ashes of that you know brian cosgrove and mark hall got back together teamed up with francis fitzpatrick who made uh, Jakers, do you remember Jakers? Um, a little kids TV show. You said you didn't watch kids TV. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't really ask. Is, is it recent? <laughs> it's recent enough, yeah. No, no. Um, and got together with uh, with the guys Gosgrove and Hall, uh, and then unfortunately uh, Mark Hall passed away. But the company's still going, and they're still making uh, films. Uh, they've got Hero Glyphics coming up, and uh, Pip, which stars David Jason again. Mm-hmm. And these are all things that we go into in the interview. Excellent. Well, let's proceed then with uh, part one of your interview with Brian Cosgrove of Cosgrove Hall. So maybe we could start right at the very beginning. Your work uh, and the work of your, your late partner, Mark Hall, it's, it's influenced uh, hundreds of animators, uh, both who have worked for you. And then the animators that you've influenced have gone on to influence others. Before you started in the world of animation, I mean, what influenced you during your childhood? I mean, was artistic endeavour, was it always encouraged? It was quite strange, really, because my family didn't have any artists at all. They were all newspaper men. One worked for the Press Association, you know, reporting on horse racing. One was an editor of the newspaper. My brother was uh, finished up as Northern Editor of the Sunday Express here in Manchester. So I was a bit of an oddball, really. Um, <laughs> ever since I was very tiny, I wanted to draw. As most kids do, don't they? They start off with a pencil and paper and start drawing things. But with me, it just stayed. And I suppose as I grew up, the influences are all fairly predictable. I used to go to what they call the News Theatre here in Manchester. It ran non-stop cartoons and newsreels at the time. That was about 10 or 15 minutes. And then the rest of it was cartoons, mostly American. Disney and Warner Brothers. And I, I just soaked it up. I loved it. I thought the whole world of animation was wonderful. As I grew up, I wanted to see if I could do it. And I started studying it and reading all the books that I could find. And then I started testing things, you know, seeing how much movement there was between drawings. And I taught myself, really, because in this country at the time, there were not any animation schools. You just couldn't go to a school and learn animation. England wasn't the place where they did animation. If there were any animators around, there were one or two guys 
tucked away in little attics somewhere, mm -hmm. maybe working on commercials for television. I remember there's a guy called Dick Williams. He was a Canadian, so he'd come over. He'd probably been trained in, in Canada. He established uh, a big studio in London making commercials for television. I suppose a lot of animators came from his studio. But it was all small commercial stuff. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to tell stories. And I finally found myself going to art school, which is the basis of any artist, really. You have to learn to draw and learn about taste and aesthetics. And that's where I met Mark Hall. He was a student as well. He was um, studying painting. We just got on. Then there was a, a guy who came in one morning a week to teach students about the commercial world, about what was going on out there, and, you know, how you, you could survive in the commercial world. He said to me one day, how, have you ever thought about working in television? And I said, I would love to, but, you know, it's just very difficult to get in, isn't it? I think I'll probably end up in a commercial studio. And what I didn't know was that he was a head of the newly established graphics department at Granada Television. Granada had opened about two years previously, I think. Mm. And they uh, employed this guy to establish a graphics department to provide visuals for promotions, um, tops and tails of programs. Uh, I didn't know that, but he finished up uh, inviting me to have a, a sort of holiday job there for a couple of weeks. He did exactly the same thing to Mark, which was a stroke of luck. And we both finished up working there for years. About nine years I was there, I think, before Bernardo purchased this rostrum camera because they wanted to make their opening of plays and game shows a little bit more creative. Well, I saw that as an opportunity to make an animated film. And mm. I started working on, on a pilot film for a kiddie show. And I worked in the evenings and at nights and the weekend, always working in the graphics department. And I finished the pilot film. And Granada were very good. They offered me the opportunity to film the pilot film on their Russian camera. And they provided me with help to do a soundtrack and so on. And I offered the show to them. And they took, I don't know, about two years, I think. <laughs> Nothing was happening. Wow. So I took it to the BBC. And they said, yeah, they wanted to commission it. They wanted me to do 13 shows for them. And then when I, I handed my notice in, and Granada got all panicky then, because they thought, hold on a minute, if the BBC want this guy, maybe it's worth holding on to it. So they, <laughs> they, they topped BBC's offer and gave me all the facilities and I took that option rather than going to BBC because well I knew the people and it was so much easier doing my first show with people around me that I knew and that I could call on for help like the other graphics guys so that's how it started. What was the show? Was it, uh, was it the Magic Ball? It was Magic Ball yeah which did quite well you know it, it won the odd award and Mark helped me on that. And that's really, on that series is how we really established our working relationship because I did all the animation. I designed everything, did all the animation, uh, plotted the storyboard, recorded all the sound effects and music and 
I got a guy called Eric Thompson, and the Thompson dad, who was an actor and mm. producer uh, and director in the theatre. The BBC put me on to him, and he wrote the scripts and did the voices. Um, he was the guy who did the original soundtracks for The Magic Roundabout, the very first series of Magic ah, right. shows. He had a lovely, gentle voice and a lovely way with words. But during the, the making of those, those shows, I got the other graphics guys to work on backgrounds for me, one on every show. And Mark was the one who was always consistently loyal. He was always, you know, if I needed something desperately, sort of work through the night and so on. And we just got on. It was great. Uh, and the next major thing that happened, there was a guy in Manchester who ran an editing suite. Uh, everything was on film. He had a group of film editors who would take the film that had been shot by BBC directors or Granada's film directors and working under the direction they would edit the show together. And he wanted to branch into commercials so he met Mark one day and asked him if he'd come and work for him. Uh, Mark talked to me and we decided that what we would do instead of him going and working for him, we'd set up a company. When I'd finished my series of films, I would join Mark in this guy's uh, premises. <clears throat> so Mark left Granada, which was really, really brave, because <laughs> by then we both got a couple of kids, you know, and you don't take a, a step like that without a lot of careful thought. Mm, sure. He left and started this commercials company. I freelanced when I could in between the gaps of finishing the series off. And then when I finished the series off, of course, I left Granada and joined him. That was really the start of our working partnership. And that, Give me another question. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't worry, I've got plenty for you. So Stop Frame Productions um, yep. became... Stop Frame Productions, yeah. Hmm. Well, did that quickly became uh, Cosgrove Hall? When um, you created uh, Charlton and the Wheelies, uh, Jamie and the Magic Torch. I mean, these are both different mediums. You've got a, a 3D stop motion and, and 2D. I mean, were you ever, uh, did you ever feel held to one medium or, uh, you know, did it not, not matter? Was it all about telling the story? I've always had a broad love of all types of animation. And even when I was working on Magic Ball, which was a drawn animated series, I was thinking about puppets. And I read up about the European puppet animators. They call them puppet masters. They really do, uh, in Europe, they look upon people who make animated films as true artists with a capital A. And there was a guy called Jerry Trinka. He was a Czechoslovak. Mm -hmm. and he made puppet shows. Really, they were sort of all Czechoslovak folk tales, really. Really quite serious things, really, a little bit like Shakespeare. Um, and he was considered a great master. I read books about this guy, and I read how he, his puppets were made, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I started thinking along those lines, along the lines of... Um, the joints that he used were ball and socket joints, a steel ball, you know, like the old cliched comic drawing of a, a dumbbell that a strong man raises in the air. Mm -hmm. They were like that, shaped like that. But the balls were held in two metal plates held together with a screw. And on the other end of the metal plate was another 
dumbbell. So you can knee joint with that arrangement. And I started thinking about that, and I had some joints made. Then when I joined uh, Stop Frame, Mark wasn't um, a drawn animator, but what he'd done as a youngster, he used to, when he was a kid in school, he used to go around and give string puppet shows to his schoolmates. So he was steeped in, in puppetry, really. But we didn't want to do string puppets because they were a little bit amateurish in a way. Hmm. So I gave Mark this jam jar full of these joints I'd had made. First puppet show we produced. And uh, he very quickly found out that the joints I had made were made out of brass. <laughs> and they very, very quickly wore down hmm. and they wouldn't hold properly. So he sorted out somebody who, who made them in steel. And that became our standard method of joints that we used from then on. And it sort of grew from there. We went stop frame started getting in sort of financial trouble. The, the guy who was running the editing side, he was hitting financial difficulties. And at that same time, Thames Television, who we've been making shorts for them, for their magazine programs, little animated drawn ones, and tiny little puppet shows. They made us this offer to set us up to make animated films solely for Thames Television. It was a good offer. They they wanted to set us up with a studio in London, and we said no, because we only had about seven staff at the time. But they were all Manchester-based, and we just didn't want to move down to London. So they set us up with studios here in the north, and that's how the whole Thames years began. We had 16 glorious years, I think it was 16 years, something like that. Mm. Was there much of an animation industry in Manchester? Because it appears on paper that yourself and Mark really created that that Manchester animation scene well, that's still going. There just wasn't anything. At the time, I think, the only animation for children's television was stuff that the BBC were doing. And, and they were one and two guys who were in little barns down south somewhere producing things like Andy Bandy, mm-hmm. Bill and Ben, Shows like that, the wooden tops. And if you like, we were the ones who started, well, I suppose an industry, really. Hmm. We did have Thames backing. It was that unique time before satellite television arrived. There were only the four major channels, two BBC, two ITV, and the amount of money coming in on advertising for ITV was, well, it was enormous. I think the cliche at the time was some big guy in television in, in ITV said it was uh, a license to print money. <laughs> it was. They had millions and millions of pounds coming in on advertising revenue. So it wasn't a hard decision for them to fund an animation company because if they didn't do that, the money would have gone onto tax. Mm. So we started off small, as you said, but then we just expanded the stuff that we produced started selling around the world and it was earning the money. So it wasn't a question of going cap in hand for more money. They were asking us at the end of the year as we finished the series, right lads, what do you want to do now? And we were saying things, well, I think we'd like to do Wind in the Willows, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we we had a, a master plan. We would work, say, for two years 
on making shorts. And then the plan was to then let the team work on a special, half-hour special or something like that. Hmm. It didn't quite work out like that. It worked out on the model side. They would do a couple of series of shorts, and then they would do a, a feature film like uh, Cinderella or The Pipe Piper Family. Mm-hmm. But what, what happened on the draw side was that we did Danger Mouse and the marketplace just wanted more and more and more of it. We certainly went over a hundred episodes of Danger Mouse. Now that tied us down to doing shorts for quite a number of years mm. before the draw side got the chance to make a special and we made Roald Dahl's BFG film. I think that was about 80 odd minutes, I think, yeah. a feature film. So it was you know, good times really. Yeah, well, the name Cosgrove Hall is often followed by the words Danger Mouse. He yeah. appears to be your, your Mickey. I mean, could you tell us a little bit more about how, how that came to be? I think one of the things we were looking with, really, we were never short of ideas. When we set the company up, we had six months, I think, while we were looking for premises in the north. And we worked from my then home. And we spent about six months coming up with ideas. We came up with the idea for Danger Mouse and Jamie. And what we tended to do was everything we did, we got better. One of the things, if you find yourself in a, a lucky situation where you've got steady work, what happens is when you finish the show, your team of have developed their skills and the next thing they do they want to better it so there's a steady progression of quality as the years go by it it wasn't just us it tended to happen in every studio that's worked in animation I mean think of the Disney studios the very first things they did you know the very first black and white Mickey Mouse shows as time went on they did Pinocchio and so on and so on and so on Mm -hmm. so a lot of the artists that we employed when they first started really were very, well, they were just out of art school, you know. Their drawing talent hadn't fully developed. But if you're drawing 8, 10, 12 hours a day, you get better and better and better. And that was one of the exciting things about the years we all spent together. We had a highly talented group of people, you know, by the time it came towards the end of the company. Hmm. I, just from uh, the puppet side of things, you were talking earlier on about uh, Shakespeare and puppets, which brings to mind Mr. Barry Purvis, and obviously you've got the talents of uh, Ian McKinnon, Peter Saunders, and Paul Berry. Just this, is just from yeah. the puppet side of things, that that all came from from Cosgrove Hall. Yeah, Barry had a, a particular direction he wanted to follow, and he was well, the stuff he produced was more poetic than the stuff that the main studio did. We're thinking more of entertaining children. Barry's line is more an adult direction, if you like. We did do some shows like that, I suppose, like Cinderella and The Pied Piper of Hamlet. They were more poetic shows. But mainly our our line was more entertainment, like on the middle side, like Wind in the Willows. The boys at Akin and Saunders, they they were quite special. In the early days, what I used to do, I would go around the art schools looking for people with talent. And by the time this happened, there were some animation schools and some animation departments in art schools. And Guildford was one that ran an animation department. And I went down there and I, I employed three guys, I think, two of them for the drawn. Who wanted to do drawn animation. They stayed with us for quite a while. 
Uh, and Peter Saunders, he was making models. I, I remember he made a, a model of a, a toy soldier, um, you know, with a, with a busby and cross belts and so on. Mm. And I could see that he just had innate talent. And I asked Peter if he would join us, and he did. And he very quickly took over the whole of the uh, the model making side, and he started creating all sorts of design and development uh, extras that really made our our models much more sophisticated. In the early days, the form that we made our puppets out of was really quite basic. It wasn't very good, really, and Peter read that there was a guy visiting, giving lectures in London from Hollywood, who was a makeup specialist. And Peter went along and listened to this guy. And this guy was talking about how you changed the shape of people's faces, actors' faces, made them look older, and how you could attach to faces little pads of foam that would contain wrinkles and make them look older. And Peter got talking to him afterwards and he got the formula for this guy <laughs> for this foam, which was lovely and soft. And he brought that into our system. And the puppets then could stand really tight close-ups because the foam was so fine, even on a tight close-up. It held all the, uh, the modeling that the guys had produced in play. This foam, it, it held it and it was, and it would last a long time. It didn't break up like our previous foam did. So Peter really built the department up and then Ian McKinnon joined in, who is now his business partner. And they were just stalwarts really. He kept adding more people to the department at Cosgrove Hall and they were a really talented group of sculptors and they understood about joints and so on and so on. And then, of course, they, they left and set their own company up. And they've gone from strength to strength. And, you know, we, we still keep in touch with them. They're still great friends. But they've gone on to work for people like Tim Burton, working on feature films. So, yeah, we've, the, the people have moved on from Cosgrove Hall. The people that learned their craft there have gone on to establish their own filmmaking companies. People like Barry, uh, as well, you know. Also, um, a whole raft of talented producers and directors as well. Um, yes. I would say, you know, behind the scenes, there's an awful lot of uh, of talent uh, created yeah, as a result of Cosgrove yeah. Hall as well. Uh, one of the things that we, we tried to do was, in the early days, you know, Mark and I, we tended to do just about everything. But then it, it was just so, so silly. What you have to do, if your company has got a longevity, you have to let people have a go at things. You have to give them the opportunity to either lead departments or be a director or work out storyboards and, and do uh, sound recordings with actors. And we did that. We nurtured people, if mm. you like. And... Uh, when you give people the opportunity, you very quickly realise how talented people are. <laughs> and that allowed us to expand and do more and more shows. Hmm. If we could just uh, nip back to Danger Mouse, one of my favourite animations growing up was the spin-off, Duckula. And I would say that it featured much higher production values, but still took place in the rather 
I'm sorry, silly world, the fun world that was crafted for Danger oh, Mouse. You're quite right. You're quite yeah. Right. <laughs> what, what Danger Mouse shows is it shows the early years. Danger Mouse was one of the early shows that we did. I think it was the first one after Jamie and the Magic Torch, and our animators were still learning their craft. So we had about two or three people. Myself was one of them who if you like, carried the show while the younger animators were were developing. So in Danger Mouse, there's a sort of naivety in the drawing style, if you like. We were cutting corners. We had to, to deliver the shows. And relied an awful lot on the soundtrack. The, the wit of the scripts and the voice tracks mm. carried the Danger Mouse shows. And I, I guess also, you know, there is... A, there's an affection for animation that isn't top-notch if you get scripts and the voices right. I think that's what Danger Mars was. It was more a simplistic series, uh, visually. But then by the time Docula came along, uh, the people had developed, and Docula was a lot slicker. The animation was a lot slicker. The, the humour was still there, and mm -hmm. the voice tracks were still good. In fact, the slickest show we did of all on the drawing side, I think, was a show called um, Adventure Penguins. Yeah. By then, the animators were really, uh, really quite accomplished. There's some really quite slick animation in, in the Adventure Penguins, although it wasn't as successful as Danger Mouse or Docula. So there was a steady progression artistically. Mm-hmm. They both feature uh, uh, very original writing. Um, I, I think your frequent collaborator there was Brian Truman. And it yeah. sort of puts you in the mood of Monty Python, the goodies, carry on. I mean, do you yeah. think British humour, do you think it's difficult to pinpoint? And do you think that British animation is best identified through humour? That's a tricky one, really. I think artists who come out of art school have a particular barbiness of mind, if you like. There is no restriction on the humour in art students' minds. My attitude about script writing started really with Eric Thompson on the Magic Ball series. Mm. And I liked his humour. It was nice and gentle. But he was never afraid of putting a big word in if it needed it. And they were quite witty. When we started uh, on Jamie and the Magic Torch, we were looking around for scriptwriters who could further that direction. We started off with a woman, I can't remember her name now, but she really wasn't very good. And Mark said, well, I remember having a chat with Brian Truman. Brian Truman at the time was um, an on-air presenter. And Mark had been chatting to him and he'd said this, Brian Truman, he said what he'd always wanted to do was write scripts for things like, like we did. So we got Brian in and it was a revelation really he he understood completely what i was saying about the humor that eric thompson did and it was brian's attitude as well the people at the top when when shows are being made there are people who interfere with script writing who shouldn't mm. because the humor that a writer is searching out is so personal that if you're not on the wavelength you can ruin it. And certainly I was on his wavelength, he was on my wavelength. At the beginning, what we would do was we would, I'm talking about the artists now, the artists mm -hmm. would work out storyboards and put bits of dialogue in and so on. As a starting point, as a guide for the writers. 
car went on with Brian, we found we certainly didn't need to suggest verbal material. It just wasn't necessary. It was flowing out of him so much. If he had a fault, one of the fault was he always wrote too much. <laughs> we, we, he would he would write, uh, say, for a 15-minute show, we'd write about 20, 25 minutes of wonderful, balmy humour. And time and time again, just to finish, to, to get the show into the length, we had to cut stuff. And I'd say to him time and again, for Pete's sake, don't lose that, because it's so funny. Mm. He never used it. He'd start again, fresh, on the next script. Wow. And the stuff was just as crazy and wonderful. So we were very lucky finding Brian. It was a, a wonderful working relationship. And then Jimmy Hibbert came along as we got busier. And Jimmy had a similar attitude about humour. So we were lucky with our scriptwriters. Very lucky. You also collaborate an awful lot with the voice artists you're talking about as well. And uh, David Jason is an extremely popular cast member amongst uh, the Cosgrove Hall uh, back catalogue. Wind in the Willows, BFG, Duckula, Danger Mouse. Uh, I mean, what did he bring to the mix? Uh, What was it like working with him? It was a great pleasure working with David. And we're still friends now. when When I first met him, I was voice testing for Danger Mouse on Penfold. So I looked through the Spotlight magazines. Those are the big sort of catalogues that Equity put out. They've got photographs of all the actors and actresses working in this country and who their agents are. And I went through this and I I was gathering together pairs of actors. I got about, I don't know, four or five different pairs. And I, I went down to Soho, got these guys in, uh, for half an hour each, um, the pair working together to a, a scripted piece I produced and uh, put them down on tape. When David arrived, he had his leg in plaster, and I wasn't sure whether you know whether he was taking the mickey. He, was, he, he hadn't done anything, and I think he he just he'd done a show called A Sharp Intake of Breath, where he'd worked with a couple of the the Monty Python guys before they became Monty Python. Uh-huh. And I think he just started on Fools and Horses. So he was an unknown, really. And he arrived with his leg in plaster, and I didn't, you know, I wasn't quite sure, really. But when he started doing the voice, I knew straight away that he was right for Danger Mouse. I had no doubts at all that he was the right guy. He threw himself into it. He became... Danger Mouse. I mean, one of the problems when you are recording actors is that a lot of them just do themselves. Mm -hmm. And it is quite a special skill for an actor to take on board what the character is that you're trying to create and do things with his voice so he stops being that actor and becomes the character. Now, David managed to do that with everything that he did. He did it with Danger Mouse. He did it with Count Duckula. He gave us a different voice, but it was Duckula, not Danger Mouse. Yeah. And then he did uh, Toad in Wind in the Willows. And then he did the BFG, all completely different, subtly different voices. But they are the characters. And it, it is quite a special skill. So I was very lucky finding David. And whenever a new show came up, I would look around for other actors and you know, you know, in your head, you thought, well, you can't quite use the same guy again and again and again. So I would try lots of other actors, but time and again, I would come back to David because he was the best. 
Occasionally, you find a, a special one who can work alongside him, like Terry Scott, mm -hmm. who was ideal for the Penfold character. And there was another actor that we used quite a lot called uh, Edward Kelsey. He did the voice of Greenback in Danger Mouse and the voice of Colonel Kay. And at the moment, he is, um, he's working on the archers. But he had a great way of changing his voice and becoming a different character from himself. So we were quite lucky, really, with the actors. Uh, and you, you're still collaborating with him now? I think he does the voice of the captain in, yeah, in, in he, Pip. When uh, we set this new company up, Mark passed away, and this new company uh, set up is with his son, Simon, mm -hmm. who has been in the business for, uh, well, most of his working life, really. How we set this up was... Mark and I had both been retired for quite a number of years, and then Mark rang me and said, can I come over, there's something I want to talk to you about. So I said, yeah. So he came over with Simon, and he said, what do you think about starting again? And I pointed out that we're getting on a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but then I started thinking about it, I thought, yeah, that's quite a nice idea. I had about 15 years of being retired, you know, and done all the things I wanted to do, like some painting and sculpting and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. So I said, yeah, you know what, I quite like the idea. And we set the company up, and then unfortunately Mark died. So I'm working now with Simon. And Simon, when we were Cosgrove, the old Cosgrove Hall, Simon had his own sound studio within the company. He's a sound man, really. He's experienced in the business. And his job now is out on the road looking for investors. We have a finance director. Uh, Simon is the managing director of the company with an awful lot of uh, responsibility. And I stay at home working on ideas which suits me down on the ground. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like the dream job. <laughs> well, it is really. Well, you know, the idea of dashing about to New York for kid fairs and can flying all over the world I don't want to do that anymore. I'm uh, perfectly happy working on ideas on my computer. The future looks, well, it looks quite rosy, really. The work we did at Cosgrove Hall, people remember. Investors know that uh, from the new company, with our experience and track record, they're going to get material that will work on television and will be entertaining for children. And we'll sell around the world because that's what our other stuff did. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's starting to uh, drop into place quite nicely, shall we say. Good. Well, that's very encouraging to hear. That was Brian Cosgrove talking to Steve about his fine career as uh, one of the biggest names of uh, British TV animation. And we have part two of that interview coming up in the next episode of the Squiggly Animation Podcast. Uh, so uh, uh, stick around for that. Why don't you? Tell me about Kevin Shrek, whose name is on this list, and I've, he did the Persistence of Vision documentary. What's that about? <laughs> yes, uh, Kevin Shrek. He's created a documentary on uh, the work of Richard Williams, who I'm sure it's safe to say that we're both fans of Richard Williams. I know I'm a fan of his work. Which one's he again? Get the fuck off this podcast, Ben. <laughs> that book is so popular. I know people who aren't 
ever going to be animators that own it. Yeah. You know, it's just a book that so many people just have. Yeah. I only realized that recently. It's just one of these books that has just become like a, a Bible of a whole medium, of a whole industry. Yeah. I think about 2% of the people who own it actually crack the bloody thing open. Yeah. And I think I think out of the 2% that don't open it, and then there's probably around about 80% that just copy walk cycles out of it. Pretty much. It's somewhat of a... A tutor to many, isn't he, Mr. Richard Williams? Especially with his with his book now and his uh, recently the the book's been turned into the app, um, which is which works really well. Mm. Um, it's nice to take these lessons and then just uh, you know make your own work from them instead of just copying the <laughs> copying the, yeah. the the sequences like like some idiots do. Huh? Well, you don't have to do. That's the thing about animation is you don't have to exactly duplicate someone else i mean the animation exercises are all in this very distinctive richard williams style at the end of the day they're very good examples of character performance but i think any animator is going to want to sort of get a range of of uh, reference material i think you can combine it with things and get very effective animation and and find your voice you know what i mean <laughs> find your find your your visual voice it run, it runs off richard williams by way of his books and his apps and things, teaching people now because he's a guy who was mentored by Milt Carl, Art Babbitt, uh, Ken Harris. You know all these yeah. legends of animation that uh, you know, and he's passing this knowledge on to, to people now. So yeah, it, it's it, it's great. It's, it is certainly worthy of a documentary. And uh, you know, I think Art Babbitt and Ken Harris feature in this documentary as well, mm-hmm. as well as other people that have uh, collaborated with. Uh, Richard Williams in the past. The documentary kind of centres around the film that he tried to make, The Thief and the Cobbler, yeah. a film which I think it's fair to say is is some, somewhat of an animation legend. You know, there's there's more talk about it amongst animators than there is actual known fact. Yeah, it has become this sort of source of much apocrypha and also a sort of cautionary tale, perhaps to people who might get too invested in one idea. It's an example of what can happen or not happen um, after decades of, of work and planning that, you know, at the end of the day, we're still beholden to idiots who want to put uh, Matthew Broderick over the top of it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's fascinating to, to find out more about this process and to find out a little bit more about Richard Williams as well, because he kind of... He paints a, a picture of, of Richard Williams here, uh, this this man who who will stop at nothing to to master the craft of animation. He's almost like a kind of you know Captain Ahab character, chasing this sort of mm. perfection, this white whale, this this monster. He wants to you know he wants to complete the the masterpiece. The, and the masterpiece was the Thief and the Cobbler. Just so happens he you know signed a deal with the devil, and um, the rest, as they say, is history. I'm surprised, to be honest, that this is... There must have been other, like, documentaries on this film, right? Or coverage. I'm, I'd be hugely surprised if... This is really the first one? I think this is the first documentary oh. on this, yeah. There was there were documentaries during production, right. uh, which this documentary features. I think, uh, okay. But, yeah, there were documentaries during production made 
of um, of the Thief and the Cobbler and of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. As Richard Williams, was he involved in the making of this documentary? Was he approached no. firsthand? So it's all archive footage. And- it's all archive and talking heads. I mean, yeah. he doesn't like talking about the film because of the sort of the the, the unhappy memories, I suppose you can say, uh, surrounding it. He's, he notoriously won't talk about the film. I see. That's fair enough, I suppose. Well, yeah, he did get kind of screwed over quite a bit. Is Richard Williams aware of this documentary? Is he pushing it, or is he... I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure he is aware of it. I mean, there's nothing nasty said about Richard Williams. There's nothing... It it probably goes deeper into his personality than you or I would have means to discover without Mm. meeting him. You know, it does paint a kind of a profile of a man with one passion. You know, a man who's, who's determined to make this film at, at any cost and the costs do seem to be quite high on other people people who can't see relatives in hospital because the, the rate that he hires and fires people you know it does seem yeah. like a, at times he does come across as a little bit of a, a tyrant but uh, at the end of it it's it's a film about his craft and about him wanting to to complete this this film but yeah I'm interested in uh, hearing more about this so why don't we hand it over to uh, Kevin Trek talking to yourself about the persistence of vision. How did you become a documentary uh, filmmaker? Well, for one, it's a little strange for me to call myself that because I feel like I'm still quite new to that, that world. I think I've always been interested in documentary filmmaking because there are just so many stories out there that are, that are real, that have happened in the past or that are happening currently, or profiles that you could do on, on various interesting people that are at least as interesting as... Um, as, as some great works of fiction. I mean, some of the best of fiction derives from nonfiction. So I think that in some of my earliest memories, I've probably seen David Attenborough documentaries and just having this uh, appreciation for how the material is presented in those films. So I think I've always just been kind of interested in what you can do to communicate these fascinating stories and people in, in, in reality. So is, uh, where, does, where does animation fit into there? Was it just the story, or do you have a fascination with animation as well? That's almost as early, because I think at the same time I was watching these sort of, you know, Attenborough documentaries, I was also seeing, you know, obviously at a very young age, these classic Disney features. And by that I mean like, you know, Bambi and Fantasia, I mean like old school stuff. And in some ways it's the opposite of documentary filmmaking animation, is because with documentaries you kind of have to see what you can find based on the resources available. If it's archival, you have to find all this archival material and uh, talking head interviews, if, if that's the, the approach you want to take. If it's verite, you have to make sure you get all this coverage as much as you can and then construct a narrative based on what's available. With animation, it's sort of the opposite. You can do anything, basically, because you have more control, but as a result, it comes with its own sort of responsibilities. You know, there's a lot more work involved especially if you want to make it look good. But I think that's also really quite wonderful. Seeing an idea come to life in such a way is exciting. I'm not really an animator. I've done a little bit in the past. And actually, that was with the help of Richard Williams' book. I didn't really know anything about the guy, just that he was the guy who did Roger Rabbit, which I loved, of course. And um, I think that that book was just essential, really. And uh, I think it was just always this sort of, these parallel things that I was interested in. And, and then this project came on my on my view. It just seemed like an appropriate uh, marriage of the two. So why this film? Why this story? I mean, on the surface, it is a film about the thief and the cobbler, but the persistence in the title is, is obviously the persistence of, of Mr. Richard Williams. Well, I think why I decided to do it, um, I mean, I had seen Garrett Gilchrist's excellent fan edit of a Richard Williams' film, uh, which he calls The Cobbled Cut. 
uh, that was about six years ago almost. And uh, I was really just blown away by the intense level of detail and character animation and movement and artistry. I mean, genuine artistry behind it. It really wasn't anything like anything else I had seen. But why this story? I mean, you know, obviously the, the film itself is beautiful, even with all of its flaws. The, the sections that we have uh, are, are beautiful, visually at the very least. But, you know, one can only geek out over a cartoon for so long. So I think, it's, I think you're right that it wasn't just about this movie called The Thief and the Cobbler. I think it was really more about um, the human story behind it. I, I think Richard Williams himself is such a fascinating individual. Mm-hmm. And so it was really just more of trying to give a portrait of this amazing person. But, you know, you, you don't want to veer off into the direction of this fawning, naive fan appreciation of this man that's sort of idolizing him uh, with rose-tinted glasses. You don't want to go into that direction, but you also don't want to go into the direction of trying to get the dirty scandal, you know, the tabloid perspective of a person either. So it was kind of an interesting challenge, but not much of a challenge, I guess, but it was an interesting sort of assignment, I guess. And an important one, more than anything, to uh, get a real three-dimensional portrait of this guy. You know, not just as an amazing artist, but as best I could of a human being. And I think his persistence is really, uh, was really fascinating to me. There is a, a great deal of balance in the film. It is a very well-timed, well-put-together piece of documentary filmmaking and something that, that is always on the lips of animators. It is this sort of this legendary production that maybe its legend has built up over time. The film also, it's full of luscious archive footage, pencil tests, finished animation, old interviews dating back to, I don't know, probably the 60s, I think. You've taken the rumour mill and the legend surrounding it and put it together for the whole world to see. I mean, was it important to iron out the legend? Was it important to to set it out as, look, this is what happened? I don't feel like I was out on a mission to correct anybody or, you know, make sure this was the definitive telling. I mean, if you were to give this project to any filmmaker, you get a completely different result, I think. Not just from the availability of archival materials and such, but also just how they presented it, what sort of things they would focus on. Uh, So it wasn't like, I don't think this is necessarily the definitive be-all and end-all. I don't know if you could ever have that, really, about the story, but it is my attempt at doing so, and it was important to make it accurate, you know, but also I don't think it was especially difficult either. At least it wasn't for me. I mean, maybe for other people it would be they would be persuaded more by the, mis- the mystery or the legend or, or blaming somebody for this or blaming somebody for that. But for me, I don't know, I guess I kind of approached it scientifically and curiously. Of just, I feel like that's the responsibility of trying to present the story accurately. And, you know, it's, it's a story that you don't have to gloss up or to editorialize too much in your own way. It's such an interesting story on its own. Richard Williams is such an interesting person. The people he was involved with are fascinating Obviously, his massive art film was, is extremely interesting and the process involved. So you really don't have to fabricate anything or focus on editorializing it. It's all really there. You just have to do the material justice. Sure. Well, let's talk about what's in the film. I mean, something that was somewhat of a revelation to me, something I didn't personally know about, maybe, maybe people listening to this, uh, will know about, but there was apparently three hours worth of pre-Cobbler material uh, back when it was uh, Richard Williams telling these short stories about the Nazarudin. You know, so three hours worth of footage there was completed. I mean, what happened to that? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the the ins and out of that. When uh, Howard Blake, uh, who was a story development artist and as a composer, certainly best known as being the guy who composed the music for the annual special, The Snowman, that everybody knows, he was really interested in in Williams' project uh, in the early 70s. So he did a, a draft of it 
called Tintac the Cobbler, which is really just sort of a, a treatment that's something like 12 to 16 pages, I think. But it's, it's a really solid outline on what the film became. I mean, it kept evolving, but that was really what it was supposed to be. But Howard Blake uh, describes it as being three hours of stuff that he had seen. I don't know how much of that was, say, completed footage. You know, there was probably a lot of it that was uh, storyboards and just pencil artwork that was maybe displayed. But it's also hard to even say when it's completed because Richard Williams had this notorious habit of reshooting stuff, even if it was finished or you know seemingly finished and painted fully on the cells. So three hours of something, three hours of a whole bunch of different kinds of, kinds of stuff, and 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 probably stuff that by far the vast majority we'll never see, and I don't really know what's become of it. But yeah, I mean, this was a film that was. Um, pretty much in the works for basically three decades. Williams had become acquainted with these short stories about this character called Mullah Nasruddin, who was very famous in the, in, in the Eastern world and um, Islamic countries. He's sort of the quintessential wise fool archetype. So he has these little parables, these sort of witty fables that describe different philosophical ideas and observations on, you know, just humanity. Um, and they're very sort of charming and quirky. So that was sort of the backbone, really, this sort of interest in what evolved into this interest in Persian miniature artwork and Arabian folk stories and all these sort of aesthetics. And I think that was really interesting to Williams because his background is so much being a visual artist as far as drawing and painting. He's a real draftsman. that He didn't want to just stick with the usual cartoony tropes and cliches that was started by Disney. He had an immense appreciation for the work of Walt Disney, uh, and especially for the, um, the Nine Old Men and such. But he didn't want to just get stuck with that visually. I think he wanted to explore that you can do anything with animation. That's what's so wonderful about it. And for some reason, he, he gravitated towards this source material. So, um, unfortunately, the, the, the three hours worth of footage was, was taken away by... So, what was the guy called? Yeah, well... Um, he was acquainted with these stories, and a, a man who was a sort of Sufi scholar named Idris Shah had written a couple of books about them in the mid-60s, 1964 and 65, and Williams had the job of, um, of illustrating them. You know, just simple ink-on-paper drawings. And you can kind of see elements of um, characters that would become the main characters in The Thief and the Cobbler. I mean, the, the character that kind of resembles the thief shows up quite a few times in these drawings, and a couple of like the king. These sort of ideas were definitely happening simultaneously. He was, he was in development in making originally a series of short films about Nazardine, and then by about 1968 or so, was really enthusiastic about, hey, why not make this into a feature film? Mm-hmm. That's when it really started. From these drawings for the book, to the idea of doing a series of shorts, to a full-fledged feature. Even though he's a Mullah Nazardine is a very popular character in, in folklore and everything, Idris Shah owned the material for the books, and his brother Omar Ali Shah was the producer for Richard Williams. He was producing all the commercial works and anything else that was coming out of the studio in the 1960s. But there was a falling out um, because apparently Omar had been embezzling money for quite some time. They were making commercial works for various clients internationally, even. And sometimes money just wasn't showing up. And it kept repeating, and apparently Omar was embezzling in the studio. And there was this huge falling out between Williams and, um, and the Shaw family. And eventually the Shaw family withdrew. There was also an issue of, um, because they had the rights to the book, they wanted 50% of the profits 
in any form earned from a Nazardine movie, basically, which is quite a sum of money, mm-hmm. um, obviously. So Williams lost the right to his main character, essentially, for his movie. But it wasn't enough for him to stop the project. And even then, he started working from there. And that's when it really started becoming more in the direction of what we recognize as being the thief and the cobbler. Back to the persistence that we, we mentioned earlier on. But uh, throughout the documentary, this, this is just the, the beginning. There's more tragedy, not just for Williams, but obviously there's, there's tales to tell about poor Ken Harris and other individuals kept within this pressure of, of the production. Did you find any surprises along the way or was there any particular stories that you discovered in the documentary or that you already knew about which uh, you found more fascinating, the most fascinating? Well, I think what's great about animation is um, we are so saturated by it that we kind of take it for granted, especially today. I mean, there's just animation everywhere. But knowing who these the people behind the art form is really interesting, and especially these sort of people that we consider in the animation world and such consider to be real masters of that, and also getting to know them as people. I think that's just obviously an interesting sort of angle to go from it's one thing to just to, to throw names around like oh Ken Harris you know Chuck Jones's top animator who worked on all these great Looney Tunes films about Bob Bunny and Roadrunner and such he was at the studio and Art Babbitt this amazingly talented animator who worked on Fantasia and Dumbo and Snow White and he had a, like, a fight with Disney and he led the strike against him but it's not just enough to mention these sort of names I mean I kind of wanted to know who these guys were I mean why would these old guys who could just as easily retired years before have continued to work at this studio. It was a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot of work in general to work in animation if it's any good. But Williams was sort of this loving tyrant in a way. There was a nurturing aspect to his um, very persistent work ethic. So, yeah, it could be exhausting for someone like Ken Harris to work for eight hours a day on a scene and maybe work on a single scene for weeks. uh, Long scenes even. Scenes that would you know be maybe a minute long or so. What I gathered from speaking with people who were at the studio and knew these guys, uh, such as John Colhane and Greg Duffel, who is an amazing storyteller. He's a, he's a wonderful personality in, in the film and a very talented animator himself. Canadian guy whose first job was actually working at the studio at age 17 as Ken Harris's assistant, as his in-betweener. So getting those sort of inside perspectives of why they were involved, I think it was they saw this as a unique opportunity. It wasn't like working for Disney or Warner Brothers or UPA or whatever. This was something special they saw. And yes, it was a lot of work. But Williams was very involved with educating the next generation. So not only was he hiring these old guys like Art Babbitt and Ken Harris to learn from them while simultaneously being their director, but he was also making his company into uh, sort of a school, really, for artists. And everybody came to these meetings. You know, it wasn't just animators. It was the ink and paint department. It was uh, secretaries, even. It would be runners and production assistants. Everybody would come to these meetings and just learn the basics of how to draw and how to animate from these old guys and uh, who really knew the medium. Uh, everybody we spoke to, some people were more favorable of their experience. Some people had a real falling out with Williams or with the studio. Everybody had one thing in common that we interviewed, and that was that working at Richard Williams Studio was the most formative experience in their careers and artistic lives. They learned so much and gained so much that they felt they wouldn't have anywhere else. Well, it's quite well documented that the company that he started 
more or less jump-started the UK animated film and commercial industry. I mean, lots of people left his studio to start their own studios and, and, and things like that. So let's jump through to, to the 90s or the late 80s, early 90s, when the film uh, had been funded. Who was it funded by? Was it funded by uh, Warner Brothers? You know, Williams had a lot of uh, attempts at, um, at getting this project off the ground. It was pretty much an independent movie, as expensive and ambitious as it was. He was really putting all of his funds uh, from commercial work into this project. So there were a lot of missteps and things, but eventually this other assignment came about, which was a project that was called Who Framed Roger Rabbit, with Robert Zemeckis involved and Steven Spielberg involved. I think Williams was maybe a bit hesitant at first, not only because it was a bit of a distraction from his passion project and doing the whole commercial work, but also I think it just wasn't really his sort of aesthetic. I mean, he's not really into the whole Bob Clampett cartoony style of animation. I think he does it quite well when the task comes about, but it's not really his thing. I think he's more interested in subtle sort of comedy and things. So he wasn't really sure if he wanted to do that because it would be a lot of work away from that. But he took it, because and, and it was a good thing he took it. He probably had these reasons in mind, because the movie was a phenomenal hit, critically acclaimed and a big box office draw all over the world. And even though for years people had seen animated characters and live-action actors interacting with one another on the screen, they'd never seen anything like this. And Williams was really the guy who made that possible, because he basically told Robert Zemeckis, whatever you want to do, I'll be your pencil. So Zemeckis was maybe thinking, well, I guess we have to have the camera stationary because they need to interact with the characters and we need to put the cells on top of that. And Williams was saying things like, no, 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 the animation will obey the camera. If you want this camera to pan through a high-speed chase, we'll animate for that. Crazy stuff like that, really ambitious things. And that's really brought to life. So obviously that movie was a huge hit, drew a lot of attention, and Hollywood saw that this guy from the UK was not only extremely talented, but possibly quite bankable. I mean, he won two Oscars um, at the 1989 awards for Roger Rabbit, one for visual effects, and the other was a special award that only Williams and Walt Disney himself have ever received, a special achievement in animation. And so Warner Brothers was interested in it. I mean, Roger Rabbit was hugely important with that, and I think that really galvanized Disney and other studios to focus on their projects, and they saw that animation had potential, you know, because the 80s, those were real dark ages for the medium. They were basically just poorly made half-hour toy and serial commercials, at least in the States, you know, really mm. bad stuff. And it, was, it seemed like a dead art form. But I think that really, Roger Rabbit really brought it to life, and so the Disney Renaissance was really starting up again. They were focusing back on, you know, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and all that. Williams was even offered Beauty and the Beast at one point, but uh, he wanted to focus on his movie because Warner Brothers that said, you know, they wanted to get involved, obviously. And they, they had a legacy with animation, with the Looney Tunes and stuff, so he was approached about finally finishing Thief and the Cobbler. So this was the first time, by about 1989, 1990, that in 25 years almost, that this movie had had real backing from a major studio. But uh, there was obviously a clash of, uh, of, of interest and, and, and work ethics that, you know, it's got out of hand, basically. He got funded, and then, being the perfectionist that he is, he couldn't finish the film. And unfortunately, a inferior version of the film was completed. And, and your documentary shows footage from, or trailer from, what had become known as the Arabian Nights. 
the footage is just tragic. It's just, it's heartbreaking almost seeing this vision transformed into just a, a crudely put together story, which, which didn't do too well in the end anyway. Let's imagine if we can indulge ourselves in an alternative history where the film actually did get completed. Maybe he was still working on it today, or maybe it got completed a few years ago. But uh, what position do you think of a completed film made to Williams's specifics? What do you think the position it would have had on the, on the history of animation? I think if he would have been able to make the movie as he envisioned, which is, you know, a movie with in which the two protagonists are silent, like a Chaplin or Keaton characters, and you have these long, lavish sequences with classical music and um, really intricate design work. You know, I don't think it would have been a huge box office hit. As he envisioned it, there wouldn't have been any wisecracking celebrity voiceovers and pop culture references or you know, Disney-style songs. And I think that it would have maybe developed a cult status as a film, which it has anyway, really. I mean, even if it's kind of incomplete and has been trashed around this movie and then was butchered in the, in the end, his vision has definitely achieved quite a cult status. And I think it would have, if it was completed as well, I think it would have been understood as what it was, you know, not a Hollywood-style animated movie, but a big, expensive art project, essentially, a labor of love. Almost like the animation equivalent of, like, I don't know, Terrence Malick or Orson Welles, you know, toiling on this project for so long for the sake of, of it being part of the legacy of this art form, of this medium. And I think Williams' influence, I think in that respect, it would have had, you know, the alternate history, you know, would have differed that it would have been finished and maybe the critics would have liked it for some reasons and liked it, disliked it for other reasons. But I think other aspects for, for the alternate history wouldn't differ too much than how it is today. I think that his influence would still continue of basically teaching the basics of animation to a, a whole new generation of animators and artists. You know, I think that still would have persisted. He's still working on a feature today. That's right. What I've heard is it's sort of pencil to paper. There's no cells involved. I spoke with somebody who worked on The Thief, who's more involved in the project, and he said that there's something with um, a phalanx of Greco-Roman soldiers, so that caught my attention, of course. And actually, I didn't notice this until I was late into editing. It was sort of an Easter egg of, uh, in the movie that even I wasn't aware of, but in the last shot, you can see artwork for that film uh, behind it. So just a sort of accidental nod to this, this project that he's working on and he said in an interview kind of cryptically he said um that this is an idea that he's had since he was a teenager so way even older than the thief of father and it's only until now that he's felt that he's ready to tackle it at the tender yeah. age of 80 years old yeah and i think that's really inspiring definitely mm-hmm. yeah could you tell us a little bit about how the film's been received yeah it, people still seem to be quite interested in this little project and that's really it's really an honor um, because this was just sort of a, a passion project of my own and it's an early endeavor for, of mine and uh, to see people really respond strongly to it is, is really special. And obviously animators and people involved and interested in animation and filmmaking in general really re- resonate with it. But I've had people come up to me after the screenings who um, said, I don't really have any interest in cartoons or animation and I thought that was fascinating. And I, that's even, in some ways, even more special to me because it shows that the core, the human story about Richard Williams and his dream and his vision and his personality, for them, it seemed to work. 
It, it's a fantastic film, you know, congratulations. I would urge now that uh, UK film festivals, look for your website, look for the Facebook page, look for the <laughs> Twitter and bug you to send them the copies of the film because I would like, to, I think people listening to this will probably be wanting to know when it's going to be shown in the UK or, or Ireland or wherever. So what's next for Kevin Shrek? What story do you want to tell next? Well, there are a couple um there's a couple of biographies on artists and very ambitious people. It seems to be a trend of mine, I guess. Um, and also, maybe something more ethnographic. People's um, relationships with their pets and animals and things uh, is an idea. I tend to tell myself something smaller, <laughs> but uh, I, I can't promise that. You know, Whatever the story needs, basically. But right now, I'm mostly just busy um, working with my day job, which is working for a great documentary production company in, uh, in New York called Rumor. And they've done some great films, and it's a real pleasure to be working with them. And also just basically touring this movie around it. You know, it's a small project, so um, I've been really behind just making uh, these festivals and screenings happen as, as best I can in my power and getting in touch with people and showing the movie, you know, wherever I can, basically. Excellent. Well, Kevin Shrek, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today, and I hope that people have a chance to see The Persistence of Vision, your documentary about Richard Williams. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. That was Kevin Shrek, director of The Persistence of Vision, which has been sort of doing the rounds for the last year or so. It's going to get a big screening at uh, this year's Annecy Festival. Yeah, it's, uh, it's mainly screened in America, so American listeners may wish to seek it out in their local festivals and stuff, uh, and hopefully... Uh, any animation festivals in the UK interested in it, I would definitely recommend sticking it on there in their programs. Uh, it is an excellent documentary. Glad to have seen it. So readers of the Squiggly online animation magazine will know that we're quite the literate bunch. We put up uh, regular book reviews on the, uh, the, the various facets of the animation world. One that went up recently... Uh, looks like a great book. It's called The Art of Short Films 1, which uh, opens up the possibilities for an Art of Short Films 2, assuming it does well enough. It's from the write-up, a very interesting book. One of these great ones for people who want to see the uh, the process of how a short film comes together from a concept art perspective and uh, character designs and background designs and all that lovely stuff, but dealing with uh, independent shorts rather than big mainstream films. And... Um, I think that's a great idea. It looks like a wonderful package. And we have a copy of this tome to give away to one of our lovely squiggly audience members. To be in with a chance to win, we're going to go easy on you. We're not going to ask you any questions. You're not going to have to do anything that involves effort. All you have to do... Steve, why don't you take it away? Because I've forgotten. (laughs) To be in with a chance of winning The Art of Short Films 1 by Morton Enevoldson. Simply go over to our Facebook page and you'll see an image of the the cover of the book. And it's as simple as liking and sharing. It's as simple as that, Ben. I see. No questions, no faffing about, just share and like. And uh, yeah, you could be in with a chance of winning this uh, pretty awesome book. 222 pages worth of you know, lush drawings and background information on some, you know, quite charming short films that you will have seen on the festival circuit in the last couple of years. Yes, so log on to our Facebook page, click like and share the the image, and uh, you could be with a chance of winning this marvellous book. What's that? You didn't know there was a squiggly Facebook page? What's the matter with you? 
Don't you have friends? I think I'm winning them over. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, for more information on the book itself, visit theartofshortfilms.com. So you recently got your mitts on a quite a delightful book by the sounds of your uh, your review on, on Squiggly. Sick Little Monkeys is the story of Ren and Stimpy, how that got put together. So really the only man for the job for reviewing this book is your good self, Ben. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? I wanted to uh, bring this up on the podcast because it's, um, I mean, we do talk about books, you know, from time to time and interview authors. This is obvious. It's pretty obvious, I think, at this point that I'm I'm big on Ren and Stimpy, and I, I regard it in many respects as as one of those particularly important shows. You know, being a bit of a game changer as far as animation goes, and sort of reclaiming it in a way. It's interesting that sort of it shows that are very different from it. I don't think would have existed without it. You know, yeah. There are certain conventions of like sort of contemporary design style that was introduced in the mid to late nineties that you witness first in certain episodes of Ren and Stimpy. Even if you don't necessarily get it or like it, you should check it out. You should give it a look and and look into it. And I I think this book, a lot of people who work in television, and I know quite a few people who listen to the podcast do, um, or anyone who has thought of developing a TV show or tried to pitch it, or is in the early stages of working on one now. It's a great read as a case study of like how so many things can go wrong, and yet the strength of the show at its core can actually keep it alive. The story, the legend, I guess, of Ren and Stimpy is it was this hugely prominent in the sort of press at the time by essentially removing Crease for Lucy from it, and he being the guy who created the show and created the characters. And that was this big blow, I think, to a lot of creatives. Like, what are these? What is this network doing? Is it out of its mind? And so what you got for many years, one version of events would be John Lucy was this misunderstood genius fighting the man who were being completely unreasonable. And the other school of thought is that John Lucy is crazy, off the rails, uh, impossible to work with. Now, I always suspected that neither were really true. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, this book is not offering any kind of definitive, you know, my view on events is the right view or the most accurate view. It is essentially collated from lots of interviews with a lot of people who were there at the time. So you start to pick up on the recurring things. So logically, those are the things that are much more likely to be accurate accounts of how things went down. The author who is uh, called Thad Komarowski. He has a website called whataboutthad.com that is mainly about uh, analysis and preservation of a lot of old, uh, forgotten, and and classic shorts. Um, I imagine it would be very interesting to a lot of listeners who are fans of that era of animation, the Clampett era, the the Termite Terrace era, uh, etc. He's contributed to a few other books. This book, Sick Little Monkeys, the unauthorized Ren and Stimpy story is, I think, the only one so far he's written pretty much entirely himself. But with a lot of people, as I said before, contributing, um, lending their version of events to really give it a bit more weight and legitimacy. John Kreese for Lucy wasn't involved with it, but the wealth of John Kreese for Lucy interviews out there essentially kind of makes up his contribution. And you know what's interesting? It is the most 
uh, personable and um, sympathetic portrayal of John Kreese for Lucy I've read. Now, a lot of the pre-release flack this book got was that it wasn't going to be that way at all, that it would be some kind of, I don't know, Chris Felucian smear campaign, uh, simply because it wasn't electing to take that, that view of he was done wrong. I think the show could have survived with him on board in some capacity. A lot of people were at odds. Um, there were different ideas of what direction the show should go. There was a lot of naivety on the part of the network, perhaps misguided enthusiasm to stick with his guns on John Cruz for Lucy's part. But in many respects, it paints this picture of a group of people working very, very hard to keep this property afloat. For people who are just really, really crazy about the show, it explains a lot of like little trivial things that I find very fascinating that would perhaps not be that riveting to a casual reader or someone just reading it from a TV production perspective. But the book overall, it's just a good insight into how things were done back then. It's a great example of, of what not to do in a lot of respects how not to proceed, what to be wary of. So here's a quick chat I had with the author, Thad Komarowski, about uh, how the book came together and why he decided to focus on this show in particular. Here's Thad. I guess to start with, I'm interested in uh, how long you've been actively writing about animation and uh, what it was that sparked that interest in you. You know, it's been going on for as long as I can remember. I can't really think of a time when I wasn't interested in the history of the medium, particularly with what they call the golden age of animation, the Warners, the Disney, the Fleischer cartoons. It just sort of spiraled from there into this weird world that I now live in as a animation researcher or historian, as the term goes. Probably when I was a teenager, I started a blog simply called Identifying Animators in Their Scenes, and I would break down the older cartoons scene by scene and, you know, identify which artist did that scene, because with a lot of the books out on animation, they really only get into the directors or the studio in general, and what I always found interesting was that with all those older films, you could... If you stare at them long enough, you start to see uh, the differences in the way things are drawn and time and things like that. Yeah, that was one of my sort of favorite elements in some respects of, of the book was going through some of those old cartoons, the older Ren and Stimpy episodes. Right. And that attention to detail of like this exact shot and this exact artist. It's interesting to, to look at it that way. How do you begin to discern that though like to find out is there documentation on it that exists well it sort of just goes back to what Frizz Freeling used to say about his uh, crew you know you just it's like somebody's handwriting you just recognize mm. it with regards to actually doing a positive ID a lot of times there can be documentation particularly with the uh, Disney films there's what they call a draft and it was usually prepared at the time the film had been completed in animation, and it'll identify who animated which shot. And, you know, even sometimes those are inaccurate. Hmm. With Ren and Stimpy, it's, it's a lot harder because a lot of those shows were done overseas, so you can't really identify which Korean animator drew that scene. They're just shoving the scenes through desk by desk. 
But the, the ones that are extra special, which is why I broke them down, were Big House Blues and uh, Stimpy's Invention, which were probably the two... Uh, well, Big House Blues was done all in North America, I believe. Uh, I had no outside involvement. It was uh, inked and painted even in uh, Vancouver. Right. And Stimpy's Invention, that was another one. Well, it went over to Phil Cartoons in the Philippines, but that one was special in that it had a lot of footage done in Los Angeles as well. Even at the rate of $35 a foot, they could not afford to do Ren and Stimpy in America ever mm. again. Yeah, it's so kind of, in, in a way, exhausting reading about the turmoil of it all. And I think right. that, and I mean, in a, in a good sense, in a, in a right. sense of, wow, it's sort of amazing that with so many things that could conceivably go wrong, going wrong this show managed to keep existing right and i i like that you said that in your review because i think mm. that's a very apt description where everything that can go wrong does go wrong um, mm. it sort of never changed that's one of the big fallacies with general history of the show is that everything came down to john chris Velusi being out of control but it just wasn't like that as uh billy west once said the screaming did not stop on ren and stimpy once john left <laughs> It's interesting also to see, like, the main issue that I guess was uh, ascribed to him was that late deadline issue and how, really, things didn't change for quite a while. I think it was the uh, the sort of even-handedness of things. There was no sense that, that a side was being picked in your mm -hmm. sort of analysis of the show. Right. Yeah, there's always going to be a thing of, like, well, if, if something isn't complete praise on one side or another then there's an agenda but actually oh, it's totally. much more believable there's a lot more sympathy as well mm -hmm. because it's not portraying someone as being horrendously vilified or um as some kind of genius that can do no wrong it's somewhere right. in between i mean in general as far as writing a book about ren and stimpy from your perspective being a fan of that sort of golden age and whatnot what was it about that show in particular that you felt that was a story that needed to be told well, it's partly because I can't think of a more compelling story in hmm. the entire history of the medium. You know, no other show got that much press coverage at the time. I sifted through hundreds and hundreds of press clippings about the show and specifically about John Chris Felucci's firing. It's just you don't see that kind of publicity about a single show or person or even a film. Disney gets a lot of press, but that's just Disney as a whole. None of the pieces really, you know, go into Glenn Keane or anyone like that. Yeah. John Kay was really one of the first major celebrities in animation, especially of that era. And I do sort of make an argument that could be attributed to Meg Groening, but he's not really an animation artist, if you will. Yeah. With all the articles and all the coverage, that being kind of unique in and of itself... I mean, how long was it to amass all the material as well as like the interviews that um, uh, you did yourself? I, this has been an ongoing project maybe since 06, I would say. Nothing's going to be how long some of the other history books have been. Hmm. Maybe I finally buckled down and started getting serious maybe four years ago, getting going with more interviews, and uh, I actually sat down and wrote it in a matter of six or seven months last year. Uh -huh. Was it a subject, given the history and everything, were people enthusiastic to discuss it? Yes and no. Right. Um, largely no, I would say. <laughs> um, 
a lot of the problem with the history of Ren and Stimpy is, you know, it's all personally centered on Chris Felusi himself. Mm. It's not really about the art of the collaboration. It's just very unfortunate because as I try to present in the book, there's a much larger scope to the story than just that. Yeah, yeah. The production materials and all sorts of little, I guess, treats for geeks like me and pencil art. And what was the process to track that kind of stuff down? Well, with the artwork, the artwork's all over the place. You can pretty much find that anywhere. But uh, usually with the documentation, you just go see if anyone who worked on the show still has anything. Yeah, there were a couple of people that were very helpful in that regard. See, that's what's good for me as a geek and a researcher is, you know, not so much the art, but the day-to-day, what was going on that day at Spumco or... Yeah things like that you know and it's it's funny because you can see in the documentation leading up to the takeover you know everything's getting farther and farther behind it was building for months as i outlined in the book it wasn't just a sudden takeover shock thing as some people try to make it out to be yeah it's good to sort of see that and finding out the more specific instances of i guess um i guess you'd call it inner turmoil or or Mm -hmm. and some of it did explain an awful lot like how the first season looked so ropey oh yeah uh, going back to the sort of post spumco era when it was still on nickelodeon and that was another thing I felt was a strength of the book was the attention it, it sort of shone on that because I never really right. felt like anyone did at the time or really <laughs> afterwards and it seemed like right. there was a lot of good art and, and some quite strong episodes sort of mm-hmm. mixed into the bunch that never really sort of got their due. It was good to sort of see that sort of analysis of, of directors perhaps sort of cutting their teeth a bit and acknowledging quite fairly that they, while sort of flawed there was some strength in, in what was being done. I mean in some respects it seems like those later seasons of the Nickelodeon run seem to affect TV animation in terms of influence almost more than the first couple of seasons like in terms of the economics of design and Right, the, uh, yeah, those couple of episodes that Chris Riccardi directed mm-hmm. later, I, I agree with you, those had almost as big an influence on TV animation as, uh, you know, I think John Kay did, but, you know, I think that's really where what they call cartoon modern, that renaissance of that flatter style mm-hmm. emerged. Um, it didn't really, you know, always say, oh, well, the commercial parodies did that first, well, no, because those are gone and then you just forget them you know chris and lynn stuff like they did that in a longer format and it really stuck out and it was appealing because it was also economical i know for a fact that lynn redesigned powdered toast man as flatter so it would work more for the korean animators right because that first one was just you know as well drawn as it was it was just really hard to get through the system because you got all these folds and all these wrinkles and everything on this impossible to draw character Hmm. and you know that can clog up production pipelines as well given the the overall infamy of the show and all that sort of conflict how have you found the critical reaction to the book has been so far it's been overwhelmingly positive you know because i know friends have said to me oh well you know this is way more even-handed than i thought you were gonna do it you know that's what I tried to do. I tried to separate any personal thoughts I had and just present it as it is and let people draw their own conclusions about things. You know, I know one review sort of took me to task over editorializing, but that editorializing was over 
the merits of the individual cartoons and not mm. the individuals themselves. Because I always thought a lot of animation text can be really dry without, you know, that film criticism. And I tried to do a mix of that. And, you know, I tried to back up not just with my own thoughts, what I mean, but how those cartoons were made. You know, I'm not saying this is how cartoons should be made. I'm saying why certain cartoons are better than others and how they came to be that way. One episode people love to shit on is from the third season, uh, Circus Midgets. And, you know, I sort of outlined why it came out that way. You know, Jim Gomez, the director, told me himself, I just didn't f***ing want to do that thing. You know, that was part of the whole problem. You know, Nickelodeon had a real indecision about the whole thing. You know, it was a show they wanted and they didn't want. Hmm. And, you know, they would get attached to delivery dates and script requirements. Well, storyboard requirements, let's put it that way, because no scripts on Ren and Stimpy. But, yeah, that sort of got to be a real problem in the later seasons because they got too attached to uh, what came from the writing room. And... You know, it didn't really get embellished on from there. Hmm. So now it's, it's published and it's out there. Do you have plans at this point to write any more on animation, do any more books, or are you sort of taking it easy for a while? Oh, absolutely. No, I, as a matter of fact, I'm into a new book right now. I don't really want to give it away. I'm working on it with Jerry Beck right now. This one will involve all dead people, so it's not going to causes much drama, I guess, in the uh, animation community. If it, but, you know, which I, I'm surprised at how quiet it's been over my book. I figured there'd be a lot more noise. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, I'm sort of taking it easier now because there's really nothing going on that I really find engrossing. Maybe a Pixar book eventually, but that's going to have to wait until they're shut down or something like that. Because mm -hmm. it's really hard to write about a company or a studio that's still active, mm -hmm. which is the real problem. Well, my current project has nothing to do with Disney, which is a relief because Disney is just the absolute worst with protecting their history. No. To be a bit of a legal nightmare, perhaps. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They do not recognize fair use. That's the uh, one okay. problem. They, they just don't recognize it. From what I gather, uh, from sort of looking at your other work recently, uh, you seem quite enthusiastic about the preservation of animation. Oh, absolutely. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, the work you've been doing with that stuff. It's funny because it's like maybe people think of film preservation as scouring archives at various studios and that, but it's really gotten kind of out there in recent years because my friend Tom Stathis, who uh, is based in Flushing, New York, and he's the ultimate silent cartoon collector. All of our lost cartoon finds have been on eBay, believe it or not. You know, prints will show up there. And part of the problem is, is because a lot of these studios aren't actively looking for things anymore. Back in the sort of when the home video market exploded in the 80s, once they found a copy of something, they didn't look any further than that. And so a lot of times cartoon credits, certain title sequences, even longer footage will still be out there and the studios just aren't looking for it. In fact, there was recently a Warner cartoon set that had the blue ribbon titles, which remove the uh, credits and the animators and the music cues and all that at the beginning. I actually had a print of one of the ones they used for Blue Ribbon with the original titles, but because it was on 16 millimeter film, 
well, we don't really want to source anything from 16 millimeters, so we'll keep looking on our own here. But, uh, you know, of course, and it's not there now. It's out there, and people are mad they wouldn't do it. Yeah. Strange business. And strange business, for sure. But, you know, it's sort of in the individual collector's hands now because there's literally no money at any of these studios going into preserving things anymore. It's sort of a shame because you think they'd make it a higher priority. But, you know, a lot of the money in the home video market isn't there anymore which is why they stopped all those wonderful DVD collections they were putting out, you know, in the Bush era. I, I guess that's who I uh, accuse of stopping cartoon video collections is uh, President Bush. Because <laughs> <laughs> all, all of a sudden when the economic recession started, all those collections stopped. So uh, if you want to blame somebody, blame him. <laughs> I think it's a good um, face to pin it on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, this has been a pleasure. Um... As I'm, I'm sure you've gathered, I'm a big fan of the book, and uh, oh, I hope I, it. Uh, I, I really liked your review. I really appreciated it. Cool. Well, I hope it uh, continues to be successful. Thad, thanks very much for talking to me. No problem, Ben. Uh, that was Ben there chatting to Thad Komarowski, author of Sick Little Monkeys, uh, the unauthorized uh, story of Ren and Stimpy. Fascinating chap. So, if you're interested in finding out a little bit more about the book, first place you should go is to read Ben's. Uh, review on the Squiggly website and there's also information there as to ways that you can procure the book yourself just go on to uh, squiggly.co.uk and find the review for Sick Little Monkeys Whatever happened to Dan Greaves seems like only last month we were talking for minutes and minutes about his his film work and his Kickstarter campaign I wonder whatever became of that guy Do you want to find out? Okay. So yeah, we decided to catch up with Daniel Greaves, uh, talk a little bit more about his success and a little bit more about the highs and the lows of having a Kickstarter campaign for all those that are interested in launching their own. Uh, Congratulations uh, on on reaching your Kickstarter uh, target. Um, It must be very exciting. That's amazing. Yeah, we just couldn't believe it. Um, Right to the last minute, we we thought, can can we get there? But... We did, you know, we just put everything into it and uh, especially Emma who's uh, producing the film, she's working on it full time, you know, right through into the early hours of the morning sometimes, so it was, uh, it was well worth it. What made you uh, decide on, on a Kickstarter campaign? What made you decide this was the right path? We um, sort of reached a limit on um, my personal funding. I've always wanted to make this film for quite, you know, for, well, for quite a few years and when we sort of embarked on the film and started getting into the production, we found after a while that it was evolving into something else um, for the better. It became um, quite a lot more complex than I originally planned. Never intentionally, but that's always what happens in the end. Because there's so many elements to this. There's all the, uh, obviously, the predominantly it's uh, plasticine, and then we're combining that with CG backgrounds, and then we're doing 2D uh, sequences and the face features are 2D mapped onto the plasticine character and etc. So there's lots of there's lots of elements to it because, like I say, it's a, it evolved. It suddenly started taking a lot longer than I anticipated. So after about um, a few months, I realised that my sort of limited budget wasn't actually going to stretch to finishing the film. I then passed that information on to Emma and. Go, 
told her about my concerns and she was the one that actually came up with the idea of Kickstarter. But I wasn't totally convinced that we would actually get all the all the money that we needed because um, we were asking for quite a substantial amount, which is 33,000, which is quite a lot in comparison to the other projects which were running through Kickstarter. I thought, you know, how are we going to do this? But in the end, it's come through, which is fantastic. Do you think that the, the funding landscape's changing for, for short films? Obviously, you've, you've used Kickstarter this time, but do you find that the landscape of getting funding for, for short films has changed in the last 10, 15 years? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there used to be, obviously, Channel 4 was a good a supporter of short films that lasted for quite, quite some time. And uh, the BBC also... Um, supported especially half-hour films, uh, which I was part of uh, when I made the film Flat World. Both those uh, setups have um, finished, unfortunately, so it's down to really looking around and just seeing what else is out there. Start looking at the National Lottery as uh, an option, which we might still think about after, you know, the next stage of development and uh, production, if we still find we haven't got enough resources to keep it going. Uh, there is that option. But yes, it's unfortunately, um, the, the way things are at the moment, there doesn't seem to be much support for uh, short films, which is tough because, um, you know, we've, there's a lot of people in Britain who are just um, dying to make short films and do their best to try and get them activated somehow. But it's, uh, it's a battle. Let's talk a little bit about the, about the campaign. You don't enter something like Kickstarter lightly, I presume, especially when you're asking for £33,000. I mean, how did you come about managing the campaign and putting all of your past work into the incentives packages? Uh, were you nervous, well, excited? I mean... didn't know what to expect, really. I mean, as, well, I was hoping that there, that would be uh, an incentive for people to pledge money by having rewards such as flat world manipulation artwork. And then the puppets from... Mr. Plastic Mime as well, um, which we thought would be quite appealing to people. But it's just coming up with the figure itself was it was difficult. We were sort of thinking, is that too much or is it too little? We actually need more than that in reality to finish the film. We sort of settled on that figure um, after sort of coming up with a rough budget of what's, what's left to do and um, still continuing with people working on the film for lower rates than they used to, which um, is, is uh, it's always difficult because, you know, we respect their talents and at the same time we don't want to not pay them anything so you've got to strike a balance somewhere in between keep them motivated and fortunately they are and they all love the film and dying to get back onto it and so we sat down and um, just started thinking once we've got the budget in mind we started thinking about what the rewards could be and um, what it takes to build a whole package of Kickstarter and Emma spent hours and hours and days in advance of launching it and uh, you know she's, uh, she's done an amazing job. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the, the final couple of hours uh, trying to reach that target. I mean must have been pretty nerve-wracking. It was. We didn't really know what to do because we had on the last very last day we woke up in the morning and it was I think uh, I think we were short of about 7,000 with two days to go and uh, we were thinking how the hell are we going to do this? But uh, we had a big uh, pledge of 4,000 from someone which was really amazing and I think psychologically that enabled people to look at it in a different light and think well actually you know this is doable let's all put our money in but that coupled with Emma 
managing uh, all the Twitter pages and the Facebook and constantly putting the word out, it started accelerating. And then right towards the end, it was coming in and for quite a fast pace. I think around about 8.30, we got the final little bit of money and reached our goal. So it's really exciting. Can't wait to get back onto it. Brilliant. Would you do it again? I don't know. It was quite stressful. I'm not sure if I'd do it again, but it was definitely worth doing and it's a brilliant idea, Kickstarter. And I'd recommend it to anybody, but you really have to do put a lot of legwork in, in advance. If we did it again, we'd spend um, even more time uh, ahead of launching to guarantee we'd, we'd have a lot of pledges. So it's not something that uh, anyone should take lightly? It's not something that anyone can just sign uh, up to? And- no, it's not. It's not as easy as you as you think. You've got to be on the, on it all the time and monitoring it and revising it sometimes as well. We we sort of revise some of the reward packages at the, at the last the last couple of days to make it look more attractive to people. You have to sort of judge it day by day and just see how it's performing, and then come up with ideas and updates. So it's a full time job. We never really expected it to be quite so time-consuming. Well, congratulations again for, for reaching your Kickstarter goal. Everyone's looking forward to seeing uh, the adventure of Mr. Plastermine when you bring into the screen. Uh, Daniel Green, thank, thank you. you very much for talking to Squiggly, and congratulations again. Thanks, Dave. So that was a follow-up chat with Mr. Daniel Greaves on being on the successful end of a Kickstarter campaign. And Mr. Greaves wanted to particularly extend his thanks to all our followers on Facebook and Twitter who donated to his project. Uh, not quite it'll be done soon, and we'll all get to see it. So thank you, as ever, to all the people who help make this podcast the legit fount of animation-y wonderment that it is. People like Kevin Trek, director of the Persistence of Vision documentary. People like Brian Cosgrove of Cosgrove Hall. People like Thad Komarowski, writer of Sick Little Monkeys, the Ren and Stimpy story. And uh, Dan Greaves, plastermime guy. And thanks to you for listening. Yeah. Squiggly Podcast is presented by myself, Steve Henderson, and Ben Mitchell. You can follow us on Twitter at Squiggly, or you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash squiggly magazine. You can follow myself on Twitter if you wish. It's Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. You can also follow Ben at Ben L. Mitchell. The Squiggly Podcast is edited and produced by Ben Mitchell with music by Wesley Allard and Ben Mitchell. For more news, reviews and interviews, get yourself down to squiggly.co.uk. Well, we'll be waiting for you, us and our crew of of like-minded geeks and geekettes. So, uh, we'll see you there. We'll be waiting for you.